Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson Skulle jag så bra som mig Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores Karlsson, Karlsson Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. And welcome to the fourth part in our four-part series of off-season action, where we go through each division one at a time and look at all the fantasy implications that happen. Also, some inside baseball for anyone listening. Elon recorded three jokes, and I'm not sure at this point in time how we record, like at the opening, which one he chose. If you want to see all three, you can go to keepycarlson.com slash live. But Elon, whichever one you chose, I found it so funny. Uh, maybe I used the one you suggested, which is hosted by two guys who love to be the central of attention, because today we're talking about the central division, and there's a lot of interesting things that happened with the teams in this division. I'm really excited to get to We're going to start in Chicago. We're going to talk about Seth Jones. Probably spend the whole show talking about Seth Jones because I acquired it in my Dynasty League. But first, let me just mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. It's a really cool site to be able to say we're presented by. I can't even think of another site I'd rather be presented by, to be honest, because this is the number one fantasy hockey website in the whole world. Articles all the time breaking down the fantasy impacts of trades. We use Frozen Tools to prep all of our shows. I love Frozen Tools. Uh, So yeah, just Dauber Hockey. They know what they're doing. They're going to have that digital fantasy guide coming out soon, so definitely keep your eyes up for that. So again, that's DauberHockey.com. But with that, Brian, let's get started. Let's go to Chicago. I'm just going to say it. I think Chicago is going to be decent next year. I don't like I'm not going to say something too wow, crazy. I think hot gonna... take. <laughs> Way to stick your neck out there. I think with 10 games left in the season, they're going to be in the playoff hunt. I don't know if that's like saying anything a little well, bit that, more. Like I think I think you could have said that about their last two seasons. Okay, well there you go. I think that with three games left in the season. I don't know. I, I think they're going to be better. Like, I think this is a team that might challenge for the playoffs and surprise people. So we already talked back in episode 349 about how they fleeced Edmonton, dumping Duncan Keith in his contract, getting back a pick and Caleb Jones. And then they put that extra cap space to work with two huge acquisitions. First, trading a boatload of assets in the form of Adam Boakvist and a pick that turned into Cole Sillinger just recently, and more picks. And in exchange, they got Seth Jones from the Columbus Blue Jackets. They also took on Marc-Andre Fleury's contract pretty much for free. They sent a player that apparently they're also keeping somehow in some kind of weird Schrodinger's trade. Uh, they also acquired Tyler Johnson from Tampa. They signed Jake McCabe to a four-year, four-million-dollar contract. Uh, they also traded Zadarov for a pick. They signed Jujar Kyra and Adam Gaudet. So that, that breaks down everything. Oh, and Jonathan Taves is expected to return after missing all of last season with his uh, chronic immune response syndrome. So all of that put together, I'm pretty excited for this team. Let's start with Seth Jones. And don't get me wrong. They totally overpaid for Seth Jones. They sent a lot of good assets, and then they g- gave Seth Jones this crazy contract. But regardless of that, just looking at next season, they've got Seth Jones coming in. Finally, a really strong defenseman to quarterback their top power play and play big minutes on this team that's desperately needing someone like him. So he pays for 60 points back in 2017-18 with Columbus. That was that last year with Panarin. And then since then, Jones has been steadily declining with paces of 50, then 44, then 41 points in the next three seasons. But now he goes from a bottom-of-the-league offensive team with a power play that has been like a troubled power play forever in Columbus. He goes to Chicago, a team where Eric Gustafsson had a 60-point season two years ago. So obviously this is a team you don't even have to be so amazing. Just get in the right spot and you could potentially produce big time. Of course, Chicago not only paid that huge bounty to get Jones, like I said, they also extended him eight years for $9.5 million per year. So he's going to be a tough hold in a cap league after this season, though... Potentially not a bad acquisition as a rental at worst. If you're in the type of dynasty cap league where you have the option to drop a player before their new contract comes into effect, he still has a pretty decent contract, I think $5.5 million for next year. So if the Seth Jones manager is someone who's not contending next year, reach out. Say like, hey, I'll take Seth Jones. You're probably not going to keep this guy for that huge contract. Anyway, regardless... 
forget about if Chicago lost their mind a bit over Seth Jones. Got to imagine this guy is due for a huge surge in value going from Columbus to Chicago. Like I said, I think it's going to be a bigger surge in value than Sam Reinhart gets going from Buffalo to Florida. That's my like uh, gauntlet that I'm throwing out to Seth Jones. He'll continue to see big minutes, obviously. Also get to QB a power play with Kane, Taves, Debrinkit, I guess Kubalik. Uh, nice improvement over the squad in Columbus. So Brian, I personally want to start Jones at a 50-point pace with upside for 60 or 65. Am I being too optimistic about this guy for next season? I don't think you're being too optimistic, but I'm going to say that I think Reinhardt has the potential to outdo his Buffalo self more than Seth Jones has the opportunity to outdo his Columbus self. I'm with you, though, that Seth Jones is going to have a great season this year or in line to have a great season this year. Jones has a chance also to renew our faith in him as a legit top pair defensive options after a couple years where everything trended decidedly downward for Seth Jones and his reputation as a, a great top pairing defenseman. But in fantasy, of course, it doesn't even matter, right? We don't care if he's a legit top pair defenseman. We just want to know if he's going to put up the points. And Jones quarterbacking a power play with Patrick Kane and the other weapons you mentioned, anchoring that blue line at all strengths with no other competition in sight on his team, seems like a really good spot for Seth Jones where he can just take this thing and run just for Remember, as we've talked about several times, the caveat with the player moving teams, it's unfair to P.K. Subban, I guess, although he could have just done better. But P.K. Subban struggled moving to another team. Here, I'll throw a new one. I'll throw a new one at you so we don't always say Subban. Jacob Truba. Okay, Jacob Truba. Yeah, but he never got the role we expected. I was going to say with Subban, the difference between him and Jones is that Subban, when he got to New Jersey, he had Palmieri, Gusev, and Hishier, and a little bit of Hall on the power play there, where Seth Jones is going to have uh, better quality personnel to work with on the power play that he's going to quarterback. So it seems like it should be harder for Jones to fail in this situation. I could definitely see huge value for him in Chicago. His best year was a 60-point pace, and that came with 24 power play points. I could see him getting those power play points and matching that career best pace again now that he's in Chicago. Okay, so yeah, definitely someone to watch for next year. And I would bump him up your draft boards. Like, uh, he's probably, if your draft is, you know, ranked by just last season's production, then Jones is going to be pretty far. And I think you got to take a look at that list on your draft day and, and bump him up at least to 50 points. I think, I don't even think that's too much to ask. Oh, at least 50 points. I think that's easy. I would say, I'd feel pretty good thinking about him as a 50 to 55 point guy. Elon, I'm going to throw out a, a comparison for you. Please, I love those. Your pick. You've got Seth Jones on the board and Jacob Shikrin. Who do you go for? Ooh. I'll go Chikrin. But okay. Chikrin is like so good. Like that's nothing against Seth Jones. Like Jacob Chikrin took so many shots last year. He scored all those goals. I know like Arizona's a mess, but they were like not that great last year too. So that's a tough one. It is a tough one because Shikrin has so little around him, right? Gar- Garland got sent out. Ekman Larson sent out. Uh, you've got Kristen Dvorak rumored to be getting sent out. Like Arizona is going for the tank. It's almost like what we talked about on our Atlantic episode with Rasmus Dahlin. As much as we believe in him, it's hard to think of him as more than a 40, 45 point yeah. player. So how much more can you say for Shikrin? Yeah, okay, I changed my mind. Okay. I think I want Seth Jones, actually. Good. I don't know. Oh, that's a really hard... I need to see some projections. I want to see what dumb decision thinks. <laughs> okay. I think I go Seth Jones, but I'm with you. It, it could be close, but I go Seth Jones. It could be also not close, right? Like, Jacob Chikrin was just so... Like, especially in a league like, like a couple, which values shots. Like, he was just... at goals. Wow. Yeah. All right. Anyways, but uh, even that we're, like, comparing these two shows how excited we are about Seth Jones for next year. Uh, okay, then uh, I guess let's talk about these other guys I brought up. So, could Tyler Johnson get back to being that, I don't know, 50-ish point guy that he was in Tampa before that huge drop in time on ice and deployment last season? I guess it'll obviously depend on the deployment he gets this year. Like, I don't know. Is he being brought into Chicago to be a top sixer or maybe more of a depth guy? Like, just looking at what the lines could be, I'd imagine, like, let's say uh, Kirby Doc centering Kane into Brinkett and then Jonathan Taves centering Kubalik and... Someone, right? A question mark. That could be Tyler Johnson. I guess it could also be like a Alex Nylander or Dylan Stroh. Maybe Kirby Reichel is ready to come up and take that spot. So I don't know. There's a lot of options. So I'm personally not going to be betting on Tyler Johnson. But if we see him in the top six, there might be someone to keep on your radar. I guess so. I mean, we've seen Tyler Johnson play with great line mates before and not generate much fantasy value in recent history. So sure, if Tyler Johnson can hang around in the top six, you could look at him for about 50. But I don't think there's upside that goes much beyond it. 
Yeah, that's fair. And of course, last but not least, let's talk about our reigning Vesna Trophy winner and Mark andre Fleury, who will try to prove that he can be as good in a much tougher situation uh, with Chicago as opposed to with Vegas. Uh, so do you think at 36 years old that Mark andre Fleury has it in him to do what his former teammate Robin Leonard did a couple seasons ago and put up strong numbers on this Chicago team that isn't known for having strong defense, even though they have Seth Jones? They still don't have strong defense, right? This isn't going to be Fleury playing behind that great core and system in Vegas, but Fleury also outplayed his expected numbers handily last season. So it's all, it's pretty hard for me to say, no, I don't believe in Marc-Andre Fleury when I've said that before and been burned, but he's another year older and the defense is weaker. And really in Chicago, when you get past the second line and top D pairing, things thin out really, really, really fast and kind of dramatically. So that would be reason to not necessarily believe in Flurry, but uh, I am not necessarily going to count out the possibility that the reigning Vesna Trophy winner is going to have another good season. Yeah, I actually think, I know a lot of people have been saying like RAP Kevin Lankinen's fantasy value now that Fleury is coming in. I think if Chicago's smart, they're going 50-50 here, right? Or close to it. Like, why try to run Fleury yeah. into the ground? Like, it's not as if last year, well, I guess last year he did actually play a lot more than I expected him to. But I think Leonard was injured for part of yeah. that. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. Like, Lankinen had this really strong rookie season. He kind of fell apart at the end, which I think makes sense, considering that he was being run into the ground and, like, playing every single game on this, like, terrible team, at least defensively. So I, yeah, I'd be okay with drafting Kevin Lankinen really late, because I think he could still put up decent, uh, or maybe not, but, like, I don't think that is going to be, like, this huge volume starter. I'm not expecting him to be a Vasilevsky. No, I don't think he'll be a Vasilevsky, but I don't think it'll be 50-50. I think there is a way to optimize this tandem, though. You've got a 36-year-old Flurry and a young Kevin Lankinen who showed some real great promise before he just totally ran out of steam last season. So I could see Lankinen starting 30 maybe 35 that might be pushing it depending on exactly what flurry is up to and how much work it is to be behind that chicago decor but i don't think lankinen's value is killed but i do think he's not somebody that's going to be consistently rostered in a lot of leagues he'll be someone you pick up for a spot start instead of thinking he's going to start every two of three maybe he starts every one of three yeah, which maybe isn't terrible, but yeah, I guess, yeah, grab him for those spot starts and see how he does. I'm interested to see how Lankinen will do. Maybe it will be good for him to have a year behind Flurry. Maybe now's a good time to trade for him in your uh, dynasty or keeper leagues if you're thinking more long-term, because Flurry does only have one year left on this contract. Okay, so let's go now to St. Louis. So some uh, decent movement on this team. So first of all, they lost Vince Dunn to expansion. Dunn mostly saw second power play time with brief times jumping to the top unit last year. Now there's really only Tori Krug and Justin Falk to challenge for a power play time from the back end. I guess like Colton Pareko's there, but he got almost nothing last year. In general, uh, we look at Krug, who had 32 points in 51 games for a 51-point pace last season. That's down from the 65-ish point paces he put up in his previous three seasons. Uh, he only had 13 power play points last year, so that's like a 20 power play point pace when he used to be closer to 30. Uh, also, Krug had a super low 1.8 shooting percentage last year when he was generally around 5% or higher on the Bruins. So putting that all together also with Vince Dunn out of the picture so one less piece of competition I guess I'm kind of ready for a bit of a bounce back season for Tory Krug I'm not saying he's going to go nuts but I think he could do better than this 50 point pace that he had last year I agree with you, but I'm not locking it in at all. Let's look at what changed for Tory Krug in St. Louis and why he was only able to accomplish that 50-point pace. First, Tory Krug had a much bigger role at 5-on-5 five five last year as a Blue than he ever had as a Bruin. And I wonder if last year that adjustment was hard for him to make. He played 18 minutes at 5-on-5 five five on average each night versus usually seeing somewhere between 15 and a half and 16 and a half minutes as a Bruin. He also lost power play time uh, on the power play. Krug also wasn't getting to shoot from the same type of dangerous spots that he did in Boston. So the opportunities that he had when he was firing the puck were not quite as likely to go in. So even though he might have had like this low shooting percentage, I don't actually think that's a big deal when he's had a higher shooting percentage. It's been because of the power play contribution he's made. And I don't know that the power play in St. Louis that was set up to give him the opportunity to convert at the same rate that he did in Boston. So those are a couple things that didn't work out so well for Tory Krug in his first year in St. Louis. We saw that Krug and St. Louis weren't quite as compatible as Krug 
and Boston were. They were like glove in hand, right? So I wonder, there's two things that could happen here to Krug's benefit. One is that Krug could adjust to St. Louis. Even better would be St. Louis adjusts to him. It's like, okay, we see what you can do. We see what we've got. Maybe there's a way to build our system and our decor so that, hey, you have a more appropriate five-on-five role. And we do run our power play in a way that lets you contribute more. So I'm hoping that both player and team can make some adjustments so that crew can get to be, uh, you know, maybe a 55-point guy instead of a 50-point guy. But I wouldn't think of Krug that uh, having the potential to bounce back to what he was in Boston, which is what we talked about moving from Boston to St. Louis and how perfect Boston was as a situation for Tory Krug. I don't see St. Louis being that perfect situation or as perfect a situation for Krug, which is why I'm not going to put him up to his career highs. But I will hope that he and the Blues have learned some lessons, that crew can move from being a 50-point player to a 55-ish point player. Yeah, I think that's fair. And hopefully that shooting percentage improves a little bit, giving him a couple more goals, which would probably be enough to get him to be that 55-point player just in that. So yeah, I don't know. I guess in your draft list, uh, you know, Krug, if he's sitting still there as a 50-point defenseman, I think that would be a really good time to take in. And maybe you go for him even when the 55-point guys are getting taken off the board. Okay, so let's look at the forward end, the guys who Tori Krug is going to be dishing to. And of course, it appears that Vladimir Tarasenko will be out the door. Uh, but they've got some players to take his place in the top six. We've got Pavel Buchnevich, who the Blues got from the Rangers for Sammy Blay and a 2022 second. And they also signed Brandon Saad, who they signed to a five-year, $4.5 million per year contract. Let's start with Buchnevich, who had this breakout season in the Big Apple last year. His ice time jumped to 18 minutes and 44 seconds per game on average, and he finished the year with 48 points in 54 games for a 73-point pace. And sure, he spent most of his time with Zibanejad and either Kreider or Lafreniere, but it's not like he's going to be surrounded by, like, schlubs in St. Louis. Like, looking at a recent tweet from Jim Thomas, who's a St. Louis beat writer, trying to guess some lines. He was projecting, how about, like, uh, Ryan O'Reilly centering David Perron and Brandon Saad, and then Braden Chen or Robert Thomas centering the second line with Buchnevich and the other one. So Buchnevich is playing with Braden Chen and Robert Thomas. I don't know, not as good as Mika, but not absolutely terrible. So Brian, putting that all together, do you think Buchnevich can maintain the around like 70 point pace that he put up last year? I guess one of the reason why you could say maybe he would is I wonder if he gets a power play role that he didn't have on the Rangers. Like he was generally on the second power play on New York, but I don't see why the Blues can't try out a Ryan O'Reilly, David Perron, Braden Shen, Pavel Buchnevich, and Tori Krug, top power play. Those seem to be their top five players if Tarasenko's not there. So yeah, what do you think? Can we see Booch once again hit 70, even though he doesn't have Mika anymore? Remember that Mika wasn't even Mika for a pretty substantial chunk of last year. And while Zabanejad did turn it on and that helped Buchnevich produce, Buchnevich still did what he did without being helped by Mika Zabanejad the whole way through. That said, I'm not about to give a unwavering endorsement of Pavel Buchnevich, who I've always liked, but I'm just not sure how high he can go. I'm looking at his numbers from last season and Buchnevich has so many high markers of variance. His IPP is high. His shooting percentage is high-ish. His on-ice shooting percentage was high. All of these numbers that are flags or variance are all at or above his previous career high watermarks. And that's not what we'd like to see for these percentages. We like to see steady, even keeled, especially if a player is showing uh, that they're producing to new heights. We want to see it happening on reliable, established percentages, which is not what I've seen for Buchnevich. He was also producing on the high end from a power play two role, although that won't be such a big deal if, as you're hoping, Buchnevich does land on the top power play in St. Louis. And I did mention off the top that, like, yeah, he did well with struggling Zibanejad and with a succeeding Zibanejad. But even so, uh, Robert Thomas is a centerman. I'm still not sure. He still hasn't taken that step forward that we're all waiting for. And Braden Chen had a bad year last year. And so did Jaden Schwartz, right? So there's no guarantee that just because you're in St. Louis's top six, you're going to be able to produce. So that's why I'm actually feeling a little bearish on Buchnevich, even though I really, really believe in his talent. I want to stay safe with him. And I think 60 points is a safe spot to work with Booch at. I think he could actually be really good and eclipse 70 points. He has upside for more than 70 for sure. But for me, it's feeling like a big bet to place at this moment uh, that that's going to happen, depending on where you draft him. Of course, I actually see Buchnevich as being one of the guys with the biggest range from floor to ceiling of anyone who's changed teams this offseason. 
Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. And, you know, we saw Mike Hoffman go to St. Louis, who we just talked about, and he didn't get the role that we expected. And I didn't even mention Jordan Cairo in these lines by Jim Thomas. And Cairo could definitely take a top six spot. So who knows how this is all going to shake out. And I think that I agree with you that Buchnevich is not someone I would reach for, just because I think there is a bit of risk there. But there is potentially some reward for sure. And then as far as Brandon Saad goes, he's been a 45 to 50 point guy in his last three seasons, generally in a secondary role on the Avs and in Chicago. If, again, <laughs> Again, if Jim's lines are correct, and I don't have any reason to expect that they may or may not be, they were just something I threw out there. But if Saad obviously can get a spot with Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron, that'd be pretty sweet. So we'll have to obviously see what his deployment is. But Brian, do you think that Brandon Saad still has it in him to be the 50 plus point guy that he used to be in his early 20s? He's 28 years old now. He's not like a really old man. He's been in the league forever, it feels like at this point, and he's really fallen off lately. But like I said, maybe that was more to do with his role like what do you think Saad's upside is going to St. Louis well it's been four years since Brandon Saad broke 50 points and like you said Elon he's not getting any younger although he's never really been in a spot where he's had a lot of opportunity to show that he can be a 50 plus point player and line one in St. Louis would be great just hearken back to what I said when we were talking about Buchnevich that we saw Shannon Schwartz be barely and not rosterable, respectively, last season in St. Louis. Not to say that Saad is guaranteed to suffer the same fate, but just that it can happen, especially when there really seems to be uh, just one strong center in the mix. So I'd love for Saad to do great things in a full season with O'Reilly and Perron. It would be hard for him, I think, to finish below 55 points, but I'm just not sure that's exactly what's going to happen. So I would approach him with caution. I would I would think of him as a 50-point player with, uh, you know, plus or minus five points, which I know isn't getting uh, terribly specific. But I, this is all to say I'm not getting excited about Brandon Saad in St. Louis, but I'm not writing off either that he could step up into a level of production that he hasn't seen for the last four years. Honestly, it does sound like you're kind of excited about him. Like, 50-point player would be pretty good. That would be higher than he's been in the past four years. I mean, he's been really close to 50, though. Let's not totally misrepresent. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm going to be reaching to draft him or even considering him, like, a late-round potential steal just because I don't think the upside is so high. But, you know, you got some steady, like... At least a 45-point guy, I guess. I definitely agree with you there. Let's go now to Colorado. Uh, so not too much changing with the Avs, aside from in net, as Philip Grubauer pulled that shocking move on UFA Day, signing with St. Louis. I was really confident that Grubauer was going to go back with the Avalanche. It seemed like such a nice fit. And, you know, that really scared Avs fans for at least a couple hours, probably wondering, like, what are we going to do in net? But, of course, then the Avalanche fans were able to breathe a sigh of relief as Saka got a deal done with the Coyotes acquiring Darcy Kemper for a... 2022 first round pick and a 2024 pick and Connor Timmins. So Darcy Kemper now comes to Colorado. He's a guy who's had two amazing seasons recently in Arizona, where he was like above 925 save percentage when he was healthy uh, before falling off a bit. Actually, I don't know if people realize that Kemper wasn't that great last year, so he didn't play very much. He had a lot of injuries. Uh, he only played 27 games, and in those games, he only managed a 907 save percentage, so not the Darcy Kemper we had gotten used to in the previous couple seasons. Obviously, now he goes to this fantastic situation in Colorado, where Philip Grubauer was one of the top fantasy options last season, and, and obviously Grubauer is a good goalie, but I think obviously playing for Colorado had a lot to do with that. But to add in a wrinkle, we've seen news that Pavel Francouz is expected to be ready for next year after missing all of last season with a lower body injury. So I guess with Francouz, it's another Jonathan Taves situation, right? right? A guy who hasn't played in a while. Maybe people forgot about him. It's like a free acquisition. By the way, Colorado also has a Taves, so it, it totally fits. Uh, anyway, a reminder about Pavel Francouz. He's a 31-year-old goalie who's done great wherever he's played in his whole career. Like, you might think, like, oh, this is just some new guy. Let's see what he can do. But he's been awesome in the KHL. He was great in like, the AHL when he played there, and he also had a 923 save percentage in the 34 games he played with the Avs in 2019-20. So if he's at 100%, the Avs, first of all, should be in a great situation for the team, right? Having this tandem of Kemper and Pavel Francouz, especially compared to last season where it was Grubauer or pretty much hard bust. All their other options in net were like really terrible. So Brian, do you think Kemper at this point is the sure starter like the patrons seem to think? He's been ranked as the fourth most valuable goalie in our rankings. Or could you see this being more like a tandem, much like when both Grubauer and Francouz were available and healthy in 2019-20? 
It's hard to say because Francis wasn't available in 2020-21 and there was no other option, even though the Avs brought in, for some reason, Devin Dubnik and Jonas Johansson. There's no other option than Philip Grubauer at the end of the day. So we don't know what the Avalanche are going to do now that they have two, whether they'll go back to the tandem that they did run, the back and forth between Francois and Grubauer, uh, with Kemper, of course, taking Grubauer's place. Kemper, by the way, let's not assume that he's going to be up to the task of playing a full season or taking on a starter's workload. He's 31 years old. And Elon, guess how many times Darcy Kemper has made more than 30 appearances in a season? One. Nailed it. Way to go. In 2018-19, Darcy Kemper played 55 games, had a 9.25 save percentage, but Kemper's had his own durability issues the last couple years, missing notable time in each of the last two years because of injury. So I think that Kemper probably steps into Grubauer's place on the depth chart in Colorado as being the de facto starter, the guy with the leg up on having being the 1A versus the 1B or the number one versus the number two. But Francis is in the picture. So I would remember that before bidding big. You mentioned in our patron rankings, Kemper's right behind Vasilevsky, Hellebuck, and Lehner. I would say Kemper is a good distance behind those three just because there is uncertainty. I wouldn't want to invest a lot on a Kemper pick, even though it could pay off huge. He's a really good goalie playing for a really good team. He's had a hard time staying healthy and there is someone in the crease to compete with him. Yeah, I see Kemper as more around the value of like a Semyon Varlamov, like the type of guy, like a really good goalie in a great situation. Yeah, that's a good but one. With a, yeah, but with a, like a decent backup that could challenge. So I guess you have to decide. Do you want to just have the safety of like every start he does get will be good, but you don't know necessarily how many he'll get? Plus, obviously, Kemper has these injury concerns like you brought up. So that makes him potentially worse than a Varlamov. But yeah, there maybe you just wait and get like a UC Soros, like one of these goalies who you know is going to get a ton of starts and has also been like really great lately, maybe not on as good a team. So I think the patrons may have gotten this one a little wrong. I think they ranked a Kemper a little high. I, I didn't vote for him, but... Uh, We'll see. Obviously, uh, wisdom of the crowds. We'll see how it plays out. So yeah, aside from the goalies, the Avs pretty much stand pat, aside from losing Eunice Donskoy to Seattle. Uh, so they re-signed Landeskog. They extended Kale McCarr. I guess looking at Donskoy, he had a solid year last year. 31 points in 51 games for a 50-point pace, including eight power play points. So that is a role that maybe can get filled. Maybe there's a new player who can take over as being a 50-point guy on this team. Uh, watch out for Alex Newhook to get a full-time shot after dominating at Boston College last year and then putting up nine points in eight AHL games. I wouldn't be surprised to see Newhook put up Don Scoy numbers in his rookie season. I think I'd be a little surprised to see Newhook hit 50 points, but I'd be happy to see it. I think given enough opportunity, he's got a shot at it, which is nice to say. And by the way, Don Scoy had that 50-point pace only with 14 and a half minutes a night and playing on the second unit. He was helped along by a 20% shooting percentage. So Newhook is going to need a little more time than that or a fair amount of luck to get there. But I believe in his skill and I'm looking forward to see him getting the most deployment he's ever gotten. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing the Calder odds come out for next year and see how far back Newhook is. If he's like further than like 10 to 1, he might be someone I'd place a bet on just because it's like a good situation. Also, Brandon Saad is out of the picture. So another person who will have to have his void filled in. And then looking at the D, uh, you know, Bowen Byram is there. So he might be ready to take on a higher role. I was about to say, look for him to take on an increased role with Ryan Graves shipped to New Jersey, as we already discussed a few episodes ago. But I just saw today that the Avs signed Ryan Murray. So he'll obviously get pretty big minutes like he has during his career. So maybe we're still a year or two away from Bowen Byram being a really big impact fantasy player because the Avs are just so stacked on defense. Brian, so next up, we're going to go to a team that is not stacked in any position. But uh, before that, we're going to take a little break. You're listening to Keeping Carlson. All right, we are back and ready to talk about the Arizona Coyotes, the team that's dueling with Buffalo for who's going to be the worst team next year. It's going to be like the Sens and San Jose Sharks from 1992-93. We'll see if they get to those levels. But yeah, lots of big names leaving Arizona. So they sent Oliver ekman Larson and Connor Garland to Vancouver in exchange for some bad contracts and some picks, including a ninth overall pick, who they ended up taking Dylan Genther. So we'll see how that works out. But obviously, that's not going to be too useful for next season. Uh, they traded Darcy Kemp 
Tampa, like we just talked about, to Colorado for Connor Timmins and that 2022 first. Aranta has gone to UFA. Aiden Hill traded to San Jose for Joseph Kajanash and a second. They lost Tyler Pitlick to Seattle. They got a bunch of picks to take on Andrew Ladd's contract. They got a 2022 second pick to take on Shane Gossbeher's contract from Philly. You know, you're telling uh, so- me you're telling me a lot of stuff, but I'm not hearing any actual hockey players ending up <laughs> in Arizona. Like, or, sorry, Ladd and Go- Ghost of Spare, but they were paid to take those guys. And all I'm hearing is assets and futures coming their way. Do they, do they yeah. have a team next year in the desert? <laughs> I mean, they definitely have a future team if all of these picks pan out. But for next year, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, let's I look at... Yeah, so there is Gossip Hare. He's going to play. Andrew Ladd's not going to play, obviously. But Gossip Hare, he actually had a half-decent season last year, right? When he wasn't benched, he had 20 points in 41 games for a 40-point pace. He averaged around 20 minutes of ice time. It's kind of weird for a guy who will either get 20 minutes of ice time or be benched. So that was a really weird situation for our friend Shane Gossip Hare. Brian, do you think that he can step into the OEL role and continue to produce as a 40-point defenseman in the desert, just like OEL did last year? I guess there's a chance for Gossip Spare to reprove himself, although if he could choose one, I'm guessing this wouldn't be it. Uh, he's not been the most defensively steady player, to say the least, uh, as of late, and there's going to be a lot coming his way. So I, I think the best we can hope for from Shane Gossip Spare is that he throws a bunch of shots on net, picks up some points, and uh, yeah, maybe when he picks up some points, he can get towards 40. Like, I don't know if this Arizona team is deep enough for two defensemen because they've got Shikran. So for a second defenseman to clear 40 points, I'm just not sure it's possible. I, of course, am quietly hoping that Gostaspare somehow reclaims himself and, uh, and gains some trade value to the point that the Coyotes can then flip him to a team where he can produce. Of course, you know, I'll never stop holding a candle for Shane Goss to spare. So, uh, but your, your question was, can he pull an OEL like 40 points? Yeah, sure. You probably put some more shots on net too than OEL, but I think that's a, a big expectation. Eggman Lyson has been pretty difficult to roster over the last couple seasons. And I don't expect it will be any easier to hold Goss to spare on your fantasy team. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you're saying how, like, maybe he would have not chosen to go to Arizona. I almost wonder if you're in a situation where you've been benched, maybe you want to go to a situation where all of a sudden, like, you're actually, like, one of the better players on the team and, and clearly not a bench option. So we'll see what happens to go spare next season. I think it'll be interesting. Uh, so aside from that, what did they do? They got Ryan Dezingle, signed him to a one-year $1.1 million deal. You might think, this is totally fantasy irrelevant. Stop bothering me. I-, I could be listening to something more interesting. I could be listening to Big Brother live feed updates. But, like, Dezingle was good on the sends that one time that one time but like look at who so someone's gonna have to get into the top six in arizona maybe you're saying that no matter who it is they're gonna you know still not be worthwhile but i'm looking at who they have so they have clayton keller they have phil kessel for now apparently there's like rumors that they're gonna try to trade phil kessel and same with christian dvorak before you mention his name Okay, so they have Dvorak, who they might trade. They have uh, Nick Schmaltz, so it might just be Keller and Schmaltz. So someone is going to have to get the top six and top power play time, so maybe it'll be Dezingle. I don't know who else it could be. Maybe Barrett Hayton. Maybe Barrett Hayton. If he can make the team. That pick was a really bad pick. Barrett Hayton at fifth overall. We don't know that yet. I mean... So far, it hasn't looked very good. I guess we don't know for sure. I remember it was like, Brian, you're so defensive of these like prospects that haven't gotten a chance. Like, I remember I brought up that Philly really blew the pick, taking Nolan Patrick second overall in the draft when they could have had, you know, like uh, Pedersen or whoever. And you were like, well, you never know. Like, maybe. Like, you're nice. You're a nice guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to have patience. I mean, Barrett Hayton has had a very short pro career in which he's done very little. Last season, he had three points in 14 games with the big club, 10 points in 26 games with the little club, the Tucson Roadrunners and the <laughs> That's AHL. That's not good, Brian. No, it's not good. It's, look, the Coyotes might have, they trade Dvorak and Kessel, they'll have Keller, Schmaltz, Lawson Krause, and Barrett Hayton, and Ryan Dezingle. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And Jacob Chikrin, and Jean Gossespierre. It's not looking good. Like this, if you were, if I were to pick one team that I couldn't draft a player from, actually, I'd probably pick Buffalo because I think I take Shikrin over Darlene. But man, it's close. Yeah, this it's pretty wild. By the way, Brian. Uh, so the 2018 draft went Darlene, oh, okay. <laughs> Svechnikov, 
Cockneyemi, which might also be a bit of a whiff. We'll, we'll see. Uh, Brady Kachuk. Everyone was making fun of the Sens. Being like, what are you doing reaching for Kachuk? He may be one of the best guys here. I think, I don't know, would Carolina trade Svechnikov for Kachuk? Maybe it's close. I don't know. Well, Zadina went after, like, Kachuk, then Hayton, then Zadina. Zadina was supposed to go top three. Yeah, that's true. So anyway, so Zadina also. But then, number seven, Quinn Hughes. Oh, wow. That's obviously the, yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, like, it's kind of a fool's errand to look at the draft and say, oh, yeah, who could I have had 14 picks later or three picks later? I Not to yeah. say, maybe Arizona didn't do their homework. Maybe they overrated Barrett Hayton. Like, there's a lot of mistakes they could have made. I'm just saying, I'm not ready to write off the possibility. We were really excited about him for the last couple of years. So to go from excited to totally giving up on him, I... I'm missing a step there. I need to see more reason to give up on him. Well, I mean, I just remember that at the time people were saying that it was a reach also. Actually, similar to what your favorite team, the Ottawa Senators, did in this draft, right? So I don't know too much about prospects, but I did hear quite loudly that Tyler Boucher may have been a reach at 10th overall when people had him at like 40th or 50th on their draft list going into the draft. It was very strange. Their, their, their line to the fan base was, trust us. So <laughs> we'll see. Like, obviously, the argument was, if you're so big on this guy, why don't you just trade down since nobody else seems to know? I remember I was watching, I was doing, I was being crazy. I was watching three simultaneous live streams of the draft. And I was like turning the volume on and off of each of them bouncing through. And all of them, like, were like flipping through pages or like digital pages. What do I, what do I know about Tyler Boucher? Like, oh my, where is he on my list? Anyway, we'll see if it pans out. We'll know in a few years. And then we'll know if... Uh, the Sens front office is genius or just totally out to lunch. That's the nice thing about a team. When they go off the board, you can actually really evaluate their scouting and be like, oh, yeah, did they did they know what they were doing? Like, if they just go with consensus, then you can't tell if the team was wrong or if all the scouting services were wrong. This is a This is one where they really put their neck out. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. And I apologize to Coyotes fans who are excited for us to talk about <laughs> their team at this point. There's not too much to talk about. I guess we could go in net, but you're not going to like what we're going to have to say because they, like I said, they lost Ronta, they lost Camper, they lost uh, Aiden Hill. And in exchange, they've got Carter Hutton. <laughs> okay, so this is a guy who's had a sub-900 save percentage in each of his last couple seasons with Buffalo, only played 13 games last year, had injury troubles. Uh, so he's brought in at a league minimum 750K. And then they've got uh, Joseph Korshanash, who is also, from I've heard, not that amazing. I guess we'll see what he can do with potentially an increased role. I'd imagine, by the way, Kajanash is like the starter next year. Like, I have no faith in Carter Hutton. I guess we'll see. Uh, there's also this guy in the system, Ivan Prosvitov, who got some games last year and wasn't very good, either in Tucson or in Arizona. Man, so Brian, I don't know. How do we compare? Dell Anderson in Buffalo or Kajanash Hutton in Arizona? I've never seen tandems like this before in my history of like hosting this podcast with you. I've never seen a team with such bad goaltending. No. And we had Martin Jones and Devin Dumnik with the Sharks. And I think the difference between them and these is there's no hint of a starting goalie here. Right. It was Martin Jones. Oh, maybe he can step up. It wasn't that long ago, but Hutton has never shown himself to be a starting goalie. Kojnaj has barely played in the league. So I'm not uh, feeling very confident. If you're in a plus minus league, you, you might not even want Jacob Shikrin. You're in real trouble if you're drafting any Coyotes. So this is just a, a, a team to avoid unfortunately kind of reminds me do you remember when we were doing was it our first almanac or our second almanac maybe it was the connects chapter and we had nothing positive to say about the team so we just talked about historically good connects do you remember this <laughs> yeah oh it feels like so long now they have so many fantasy relevant players good job jim benning turn <laughs> well, that team around <laughs> i don't know if that's the lesson but the the upshot for arizona fans is maybe in a, just a couple years from now you'll have found a really Great couple cornerstone pieces to be excited about. Yeah, they could have had one in uh, Quinn Hughes, but they took Barrett Hayton instead. Okay, so let's go to Dallas, who was also pretty quiet. So I guess we're kind of rounding out the show. Dallas, Minnesota, Nashville, and Winnipeg all didn't really do too, too much. Uh, the biggest signing for Dallas, I guess, is uh, bringing in 36-year-old Ryan Suter. They got him on a four-year, $3.65 million contract after he was bought out by Minnesota. Suter actually like had a really awesome season in 2019-20. I think people might forget that he had a career-high 57-point pace in that season in 69 
59 games, but he fell hard last season. Only 19 points in 56 games for a 28-point pace. So he went from like his best ever season to one of his worst ever seasons. Now he comes to Dallas, where he's, of course, behind Klingberg and Haskinen in terms of like offensive opportunities. So IMO... And I'd imagine you'd agree we're not expecting any like fantasy relevance at this point for Ryan Suter. We're just hoping, or Dallas is just hoping that he could be just a strong like minute eater on the back end. Exactly, and I think Dallas is a great spot for Ryan Suter to land. He plays well in the solid system which Dallas has, and Suter can play with Haskinen or Klingberg in the top four. But at 36 years old and on a new team, I don't expect much fantasy value from Suter, especially with two power play quarterbacks ahead of him as it is. Maybe you'll get some good peripherals out of him and I don't know 30 35 points even that seems stretching it but uh yeah no fantasy value here except for perhaps some odd peripherals and maybe a point here or there we're just talking we're just this is just being completist right there's no like we have to say Ryan Suter moved to Dallas I want to say something about yeah. Dallas. I guess we could we could also talk about Braden Holpe. Uh, he signed a one-year, $2 million contract. He has struggled for the last couple of years. He'd be an all-star compared to what I'm expecting from the goalies in Buffalo or Arizona. But for Dallas, so they get Holpe. They already have Hudobin. They already have Ettinger. They already have Ben Bishop. So Holpe's coming to potentially a crowded net, though there was a quote from GM Jim Nil saying, we don't know when Bishop is going to play next season, if he plays at all. So maybe they had to bring in Holpe because they're not assuming Bishop will play. Uh, obviously, this isn't great for Jake Ettinger, who had a decent enough rookie season, a 9-11 save percentage in 29 games. He had some good runs there. I'm assuming now he's going to start in the minors since Hudobin and Holpe are in the system. Uh, and we look at Anton Hudobin, by the way. He had a down year last year after taking the Stars to the finals. He only had a 905 save percentage in his 32 games. By the way, I don't even want to be one of these guys. Like, and I told you so, like shooting my own horn kind of guy. But I remember all last offseason going into the year, Brian, you remember this, right? I was like, Hudobin's never been a starter. I wouldn't expect him to continue putting up those numbers that he had last year now that he's actually expected to be a starter. And he didn't. So sorry, but I was right. So when it happens, I got to say it, okay? Anyways, whatever. Hudobin still was awesome compared to Holtby, who had an 889 save percentage last year in 21 games with Vancouver. So, Brian, how do you see this goalie situation shaking out? Seems like probably it should be a tandem with Hudobin and Holtby. Maybe Hudobin plays a little bit more. I'm not really convinced that Holtby has it in him to be that good. So I'd imagine uh, Hudobin... Like, if anything, like this Holtby signing makes me think Hudobin will play more than if they didn't sign Holtby and they had Jake Ettinger as the backup. Well, Elon, someone I know who listened to Elliot Friedman's 32 Thoughts podcast <laughs> told me that on that show, Anton Hudobin is, was rumored to not be long for Dallas, that there is enough interest in him that he might not be there by the time the season starts, which means that while Bishop is injured, Ettinger gets a, cho- uh, gets a shot to outplay Braden Holtby, which oh. seems pretty likely, right? Like Ettinger might be the best goalie, even if Hudobin stays, he might be the best of those three goalies on the roster after Bishop and could offer some solid value until Bishop gets into the lineup. He seems like someone, Edinger, you can draft and be ready to cut bait with. Like, he's not going to be a full season hold, but he might help you for a month or two right off the top. Um, for Braden Holtby, this is a, a safe place in Dallas for him to play, but I still have very low expectations for what he can accomplish. I think he's there as a, as a veteran presence for Jake Ettinger while Bishop is healing. And then when Bishop is healthy, I'm actually not sure what happens next. I'm sure Holby would love to reestablish himself and see at least half of the starts. But yeah, I am hoping, I'm going to make some assumptions here that Bishop is injured a while, Hudobin moves out, and that Ettinger plays a, a shade more than half of the starts and perhaps even has upside to play even more of those if Holtby still proves that he can't handle the workload. Well, as someone who's the friend of someone who has a friend who listened to the 31 Thoughts podcast, clearly I missed this rumor. And if it's true that Hudobin gets moved, then yeah, give me Ettinger for sure in my fantasy drafts, because I definitely have a lot more faith in him than Braden Holpe. Okay, so let's go now to Minnesota. Ryan Suter's former team, who probably the biggest moves they made, at least in terms of headlines, was buying out Ryan Suter and Zach Parise. We already talked about that a couple shows ago. And they really didn't do that much else yet. We're still waiting for them to sign Kirill Kaprizov and Kevin Fiala. They should really do that. That was my joke, by the way, at the start of the episode. If that's the intro that we used, that Kaprizov has potential, or there was like news or rumors that he's potentially threatened that he's going to go back to the KHL, or that's potentially a possibility. The GM of Minnesota is saying like he's not worried about 
about that. So let's see how this plays out. Fiala just recently opted for arbitration. So I guess they weren't able to agree on a deal. So they're going to get Fiala for a year or two. And then I imagine he'll be a UFA. So we'll see what happens there. That would be a huge loss for Minnesota. But that's something to worry about in a year or two. In the meantime, what have they done? They signed Alex Goligoski. That's all I got for you, Brian. He signed a one-year, $5 million contract. Goligoski had 22 points in 56 games last year for a 32-point pace. Perhaps with Suter out of the picture, Goligoski sees some increased power play time than he had in Arizona. Like, he could be the guy, instead of Suter playing on the second unit with Dumba, while, like, Jared Spurgeon is playing on the top unit. Maybe Goligoski can challenge for around 40 points again, which is probably the like ceiling of what I'd expect from him. He's potentially valuable in fantasy because he's great for blocks. And so if he could be like a 40 point defenseman with lots of blocks, that'd be good, but probably not something you want to bank on. No, I wouldn't want to bank on much production from Alex Goligoski. You know, he's the same age as Ryan Suter and he also paced for roughly 30 points last season. So I'm not expecting 40 from Goligoski. I'd be happy with 35. And you might like the peripherals that Goligoski offered in Arizona. But when's the last time a Minnesota defenseman provided you with great value there? I don't think that there's the same opportunity for hits and blocks to be gathered in Minnesota as there were in Goligoski's former situation. So I see Goligoski as being less relevant now that he's in Minnesota and he was just barely hanging on to relevance last year. So that's not saying a whole lot about his fantasy value. Okay, so that's it. Hopefully we'll be talking soon about Minnesota re-signing Kirill Kaprizov. We won't even have that much to say. We'll be like, good. He's very good. Expect 80 plus points. That's what, that's what I'll say about Kirill Kaprizov when he signs, uh, if he signs. So let's go now to Nashville and talk about a team that we kind of already talked about quite a bit in episode 349. So go and listen to that episode if you want to hear our breakdown of how they lost Ryan Ellis and Victor Arvidsson. I, I feel like saying they lost these players actually isn't probably the right word because they did they traded them and got returns. Actually, what was the return for Victor Arvidsson? I think that was only a pick. So that wasn't really too much of a return. Regardless, they got Cody Glass in return, at least in the Ryan Ellis trade. Nothing too much else to report since that last episode. They extended Mikhail Granlin for another four years, $5 million per year. So I guess we could strap in for another four years of Granlin barely scratching fantasy relevance once in a while and then falling off. Uh, they signed David Riddick to a one-year, $1.25 million contract, so he'll back up Soros with Pecorine retiring. And that's pretty much all I got, Brian. So any fantasy relevance that you want to bring up for these changes on your end? No, I don't think so. Uh, Mikhail Granlund in Nashville is like the weirdest marriage, right? Granlund doesn't, like, Granlund plays minutes for Nashville, and Nashville is a place where Grandlin plays, but it, it doesn't seem like either either side is giving the other maximum value. And yet they just signed on together for another four years at $5 million. So I'm glad Grandlin has a contract. I wish he was in a place where he could do a little bit more. Remember those years just before he went to Nashville? He was amazing in Minnesota. He had broken out and it was so exciting. And then uh, splat. Uh, he arrived in Nashville and did very, very little. So that's a bummer. And then for the Predators getting David Riddick, I think that is good news for UC Saros, actually, because you think back to our Pacific episode where we talked about the Canucks and how they got Halak to back up Demko. Halak is probably more capable of stepping in than Riddick is. So that means that Nashville might have to rely on Saros, whether uh, in good times and bad. And so if you're looking for volume, that makes Saros a better play, in my opinion, than Demko. Yeah, it's one of those things where like too much volume might be bad because then you get run into the ground. So hopefully Riddick could be decent enough when he plays. I'm hoping for Laurent Bossois upside from David Riddick when he you know was spelling Connor Hellebuck. And now we'll see how he does spelling Robin Leonard over in Vegas, if you remembered. It's a fun trivia question for your dinner parties. What team is Laurent Bossois going to be on next season? R-O-B-I-N-L-E-H-N-E-R. I don't understand. You said spelling Robin Leonard. Oh. Sorry. Good one. All right, and let's finish off, Brian. We've covered 31 teams. Why not one more in this four-part series? Let's go to Winnipeg. And since we're going in decreasing order of interesting things that happened, we're not going to be ending with a bang here because Winnipeg also did not do too much in this offseason, at least so far. So they lost Mason Appleton to Seattle. They re-signed Paul Stasny for another season, which I guess, you know, if things stay the same as they were last year, that might mean that Pierre-Luc Dubois and Nikolai Ehlers once again find themselves on the outside looking in for that top power play. 
I guess the biggest changes have come on the back end. They acquired Nate Schmidt from the Canucks for a third round pick in 2022. They acquired Brendan Dillon from the Caps for a couple of picks. So I don't know. Not much to say there. Like I know Schmidt struggled a bit last season. Definitely fell off offensively from his Vegas days. Maybe there's a, this is not even like I wrote this question. I don't even see why I should ask it. I don't think anyone's expecting Nate Schmidt to be fantasy relevant, but I don't know. Do you think Nate Schmidt is good? I think he's good. So maybe he finds a little more value. It never seemed like a fit in Vancouver, especially a Winnipeg decor that's going to lean on him. Uh, You know, decent chance. Maybe his hits bounce back for the first time since leaving Washington used to hit Nate Schmidt. And then he went to Vegas and that wasn't part of the game plan there. And then he went to Vancouver and nothing was part of the game plan there. Uh, If you're looking at Nate Schmidt for fantasy value, you might get okay peripherals and man production. I prefer him to say Alex Goligoski, but he's still not somebody high on my list. Okay. Yeah. I guess like the one thing about bringing in Schmidt, bringing in Brendan Dillon is maybe for once Winnipeg like won't have bad defense. Like maybe this could be good for Connor Hellebuck or maybe bad for his fantasy value. If you'll have fewer shots against like they've got Morrissey, Schmidt, Brandon Dillon on the left, uh, Pionk, DeMello, and Hainola on the right. I know people were worried about Dillon DeMello potentially getting taken by Seattle, but that didn't happen. They took Mason Appleton. So, I don't know. They also have Logan Stanley in the mix, so maybe they have a decent enough top 6D core. What else can I say? Oh, they got Eric Comrie to be the new Laurent Brossois. (laughs) So that's going to be your backup for Connor Hellebuck next year. One of the most irrelevant positions in the league, the backup of Connor Hellebuck, only behind Brian Elliott, who is backing up uh, Andre Vasilevsky next season. Yeah, and if the name Eric Comrie sounds familiar, it's because he was also the old Laurent Brossois, and now he's the new one too. So uh, yeah, but I don't even know, Elon, like you're saying, maybe the Jets defense is better and that helps Hellebuck. I'm curious to see. He seems like one of these goalies that really thrives in chaos. And uh, I can't imagine that better defense is really going to hurt him. But I am curious to see uh, if there's like a different rhythm or something. He survived whatever the heck was happening in the Winnipeg back end last season. And I'm sure he'll adjust just fine to whatever the new situation is. I don't even know why I'm talking about it. Uh, I have him in that top three group of goalies with Vasilevsky and Lehner. And I don't feel uh, compelled to change it. Although, if I was to say that one of those three is going to have a down year, if I had to pick one, I'd say Hellebuck is the most likely. Oh, I'd say Leonard's the most likely. But I know you love Robin Leonard so, so, so much. Yeah. Brian, we did it. We made it through all 32 teams in four episodes. And here we are. We're totally up to date on everything that's gone on in the NHL, I think. Except for the draft. We still need to do an episode about the draft at some point. But aside from that, I hope you've enjoyed. Uh, now I'm talking to the listener. I hope you've enjoyed these episodes. Let us know if you did or if you didn't. Uh, tweet at us. At Keeping Carlson. We'd love to hear your feedback. If you enjoyed it, we'll, of course, take that five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you didn't enjoy it, then just... Uh, well, why are you even listening at this point? That'd be so rude to listen through all four of these episodes. You didn't like it. Then leave us a bad review on Apple Podcasts. You must have liked it a little bit if you made it this far. So I'm assuming I'm talking to no one at this point. Anyway, why am I rambling here? Okay, we got our Patreon, keepingcarls.com slash patron. Check that out. Uh, but with that, let's just uh, let's get going here, Brian. Let's cue the outro music. Why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and powered by our patrons. Logo art from brandonweave.com. Outro music by Pat Roach. This episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Tools, Dauber Prospects, Natural Stat, Tricky Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly Hockey Reference, Hockey Biz Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, and NBC Sports Edge. I guess we haven't talked about Evander Kane and these uh, alleged rumors of him gambling, so... Anyways, that's the one thing we haven't discussed, but what is there really to say? Watch it. If you have Evander Kane in a keeper league, who knows? Yeah, I mean, happens. we got the news at the dawn of this past season that he was filing for bankruptcy and, like, everything was thrown in the air and he had a really... I don't know. There's, there's a lot to talk about. Um, Not really for our podcast, anyway. Yeah. That's more... That, this is the 31 thoughts. <laughs> there's a lot of off-ice stuff to talk about, about which we know nothing. I guess we'll just wait and see whether he's playing or not come October. Okay, so now we've covered everything. Okay, so great job as always, Brian. Coming up soon, we've got some more 32 Beats interviews coming up. We're also going to start talking about the Kakuffle. We've got an episode planned about league design and announcing all the exciting rule changes that we've got planned for the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patriot Fantasy League. So make sure you are subscribed. And until then, Brian, uh, what should people do? Do what you can to help make it so that fantasy hockey is for everyone.